Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We are live on the 28th of September in the Sugar Club on Leeson Street in Dublin City Centre. Tickets are available now on eventbrite.ie and the link for that is at the bottom of this podcast that you're listening to right now. And if you're a member at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack, there is a discount code waiting for you in your email notifications. If you're not a member, please join us. It's a price of a fancy cup of coffee and a scone once a month to you. The easiest bit of activism you can do. You'll be helping to carve out that little bit of space that this left-leaning, independent, ad-free, sponsor-free podcast platform needs. And by paying it forward, you're keeping it free for everyone. So take a minute and click the link at the top of the podcast. This is patreon.com forward slash tortoise and join us for a month. That's all I'm asking you to do. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for liking, sharing and recommending this to people. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and back as promised. A few weeks ago, Martin, we were very fortunate to speak to some powerful women who were speaking not just for their children, but for the children of of other people who didn't have voices, who are struggling in the system for child and adolescent mental health services and the absolute disgrace that it is in this country, this country of plenty, this country of, you know, a surplus, a budget surplus that would make Jeff Bezos um, blush. And uh, I know at the time we got some brilliant feedback and uh, actually I uh, I know you, you basically, you were really impacted by that conversation yeah yeah i i think if you can't take care of your children then what is the purpose of it all why do we have a government why do we have a surplus why do we have systems in place if you can't provide for children why why are any of this stuff in place if it doesn't work yeah look um and and we this is we're going to turn return to that topic now uh, we'll get there in, in a few minutes. But first of all, I want to introduce our guest because he's come all the way over to sit in the tortoise shack, which is great to have someone back in person for the first time in a couple of weeks. Uh, we are joined by Sinn Féin's sp- uh, spokesperson for mental health, Mark Ward. Mark, thanks. It's good to see you in person. We've, we've done this before on Zoom, but, uh, you know, thanks for coming over. And thanks for having me on. I said it's, it's good to see you in person. It's a lot better than Zoom. It absolutely is. Before we get to um, your work on mental health advocacy and I know um, from speaking to people in the likes of mental health reform and actually in drug services that you've got a long track record yourself. Um, can we can we ask, just explain a little bit about listeners who come to this at first time, who you are and what you do, what you do? So I, I call myself an accidental politician. This wasn't, this was never my, part of my plan. As a young man growing up in North and North, and it's probably one of the more disadvantaged areas of, of Dublin. Um, politicians for me were, were, were fellas in suits and I was a young lad in a tracksuit and I had no identity whatsoever in them. But I was always inspired by activism and the only activist people that were active around my area, even though they weren't getting elected each year, was, was Sinn Féin uh, people on the ground. And that's kind of, I gravitated towards mm. Sinn Féin because that community activism. And I got involved in community activism for uh, a long, long time. And then I joined the party and over the years I was in the party, I was out of the party, I, I had family life and all that kind of stuff going on. And then I, I, I came back into the party. I would have worked in addiction services, I would have worked in mental health services, frontline over the years and as, as well as being a member of the party. And probably the reason I'm here now is that there was an election in 2016 and Ona Bryn, who's in my area, got elected and the party asked me would I go on to uh, a co-option in the South Dublin County Council. Now, people said I banged my head at the time because the decision I had to make at the time was I couldn't continue to work in the frontline addiction service because the organisation I was working at the time wouldn't allow me to do both the councillor and the, but I took a chance, so I took a big drop in salary and stuff to, to become a full-time councillor at the time mm. um, and it, it's something I haven't looked back from since and it's something I really enjoy. 
Mark, you have your own issues that you have to deal with. I, mean, I hope you know you don't mind me saying he, you. He just, he just said family stuff and other stuff, life stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a lot yeah, more than just yeah. You have MS. I, I have. We can be straight up about yeah. it. You have MS. How's that going? So I was diagnosed, geez, when I think back when now, it was 16 years ago now, so I was 32 when I was diagnosed, but I did a number of years before that, where I was being misdiagnosed, undiagnosed, ended up in emergency departments with, I thought was symptoms of stroke, whatever it might have been, and been told, sent home, and there was they couldn't find anything wrong with me. Um, I eventually got diagnosed at the age of 32, and I still remember the, the time when I got the diagnosis. My first emotion was relief because I knew where I was and once I knew where I was I, I could tackle it but my second emotion was fear and it was a fear that I wasn't used to as a young as a young man a fear that I hadn't got the ability to articulate and speak to people about because when you come from my area you don't tell people you're afraid because yes, it's seen as a sign of weakness that led me into a into depression but I didn't know I had depression and um, until someone diagnosed me with depression and then I was able to deal with that it's been a journey since then so that's 16 years ago I was on medication at the start I, I medication wasn't working for me I changed my lifestyle I didn't drink alcohol for nearly 6 years I um, I changed my eating habits I started training I, I done positive things mm. and then my quality of life start start getting better um, and I, I've been working quite well but I, I go ahead Did the work you do kind of teach it because it's funny because you were doing that work in uh, in the community and all the rest of it and realising that you probably had to do the work on yourself did you was there like a you you weren't able to see the link between you know practising what you preach in terms of you know needing to, to recognise that you needed help as much as the people who you were maybe helping in the re outreach and the drug services yes. and that. so at the time I said I was 32 I wasn't actually working in drug services then yeah. so what MS has done for me now the, the benefits of me having MS was because because I had to change I, in my mind I had to change careers because I was what I was working up was in logistics quite physical work and I mm. said right I'm going to have to change that I went to college no, people say he went back to college no I was never in college <laughs> I left school after my leaving cert and went straight to work um, I went to college and what I did study then was addiction, study, addiction studies and behavioural therapy and that allowed me to go into that line of work so it was a combination of doing the education on myself but also changing my lifestyle that led me to make the positive changes that I am today How's the MS now Mark? So last year, so my MS is fine. So I, I'm one of these devils that will give myself challenges every year. And sometimes they're unrealistic, but I managed to do them. Um, I ran a marathon in 2018, which was a big thing for me um, to be able to do that. I couldn't uh, imagine myself doing that when I was first diagnosed. I'd done a cycle then two years ago uh, to court down 108 kilometres. But last year, I, I got an MRI scan and the MRI scan showed there was three new lesions in my brain. Now, the, the neurologist was... A little bit concerned, but not overly concerned, but he said I had to do something. Mm. So even when we talk about COVID and stuff like that, my message to people was believe in the science, believe in the doctors. If they're telling us to do one thing, that's the route I'm going. He says, I've heard you preach that a number of times, Mark. You're going to have to listen to me now. Mm. So I did. I listened to him. I took on board. He gave me a number of treatment options. And one of the, the ones that the one that I chose was one that I thought would have the least impact on my quality of life now. So it's it was it, it's a two year treatment, but it's not over two years. It's one month of each a year in twenty twenty two and one month in twenty twenty three. So it's a chemotherapy treatment that I took. It's quite severe. It's for a month. Mm. Um the side effects, a lot of tiredness, um I lost my hair, um all that kind of stuff. I'm I'm gonna I'm sorry now yeah. for the, for being this prick, but 
did, did that was why you had to wear those awful clothes, was it? That's why I wore those <laughs> off, awful clothes. And, 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 I'm saying that now. Martin is wearing orange cords for the benefit of listeners who orange can't see this so, flare you know. stretch cords. Excuse me. Uh, so last year when I was in the daughter, I did get myself ice cold, and I hadn't got the proper. So yeah. straight over to TK Max, I seen it. I seen a cardigan which I thought was really trendy. I still think it is, and I, might, I would still wear it. <laughs> and, and, and a paddy and a paddy cap on my glasses and my mask. So I was a soy, but that, that's the oh, way it was. No, 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 I couldn't. It was necessity. I would have been wrong if I hadn't if I didn't show that dig as, <laughs> as, as someone who's so sartorially sound as myself. Like, yeah, yeah. How, like, how did you get on with the Kimmy? All right, with the Kimmy. So I, I said I done it last year. It, it knocked me a bit. Um, I have to do it again this year. Um, so on the thirtieth of October, I have to do that with a month, the second month of it. Um, all going well. My blood tests and all have, have come back well. Um, all going well. I won't have to do any treatment for two years, and then I'll be tested during them two years, and if everything goes. 100% according to plan that could be my last time doing that treatment and that's what I'm hoping for yeah well that's I hear you saying you yeah. took the easy treatment chemo just isn't easy yeah. so <laughs> and, and, and I'll explain that as well so the chemo is not, is not easy but it's a it's a different form of treatment a chemo treatment than it would be for a cancer patient. So it it's not as strong, it's not as invasive but it's it's still not not the oh, stuff out me so if that if, if that what what I was getting was the less invasive treatment. I thank God I hadn't had to do tra- cancer well, treatment. Well, at least chemo. your hair grew back, Martin, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and it grew back thick and it grew back darker as well. Which I, it's a side effect that you, I will take. You're, you're forty eight, are you? Forty eight. Yeah, we look about twenty two. Good man, I'll take that. So uh, no, no well, look, thanks for sharing that, and I think it's important people get a handle of because politicians we uh, we're often dehumanising them. Let's tell the truth, and like, and that's the same across mm. the board. But uh, you've always been fairly frank that and I've and I'm also as I said I've watched what you've done since you've got into the doll but one of the things that you that we wanted to speak specifically about today was youth mental health services and it's something that you've put a lot of time and effort into as I said what we kind of there's a little Venn diagram of people that we work with in, in activism and in, in, in advocacy and mm-hmm. in lobbying and all and I find you in the same circles so okay. but tell me um, do, is it worse than you thought it would be when you got elected? How how trying to get things changed when it comes to particularly things like you're passionate about, in particularly youth mental health services. So coming as a from a county councillor, when you're dealing with the local issues and the, the ground from footpaths to the street lights to, to whatever might come your way, and then you're you're in in the doll, and then you you get this role as spokesperson for mental health, and it's because of my background working with people with mental health difficulties, and then you start trying to work the system that's there, and it's absolutely horrendous. The red tape and the bureaucracy that the that the HSE have there trying to get through that is absolutely disgraceful. Trying to trying to work that through. Um, and it's not joined up, Mark. There's no, no joined up think, thinking at all goes on in this. It's all siloed. It is all siloed, and like, and sometimes you'll find that systems are in place that are meant to help that are counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also you'll find that sometimes it's personalities within the HSE and with, within services that are also counterproductive and not helpful as well. That are blocking changes that need to be made. The report that you've that's come out, like we referenced at the outset of this podcast, the the wonderful um, parents of children who are trying to get services, and um, I don't know if you listen back, but like the idea, but I know you've spoken with the 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 the, the, the organisation, yeah. um, uh, families for reform of CAMS, Hannah, yeah. uh, and and Hannah and, and yeah. the guys and and yeah. the work that they've done. 
the numbers though behind that are staggering. I think at one stage um, I put up something on social media and just to let you know how it works folks, I put up something on social media and Mark did me the courtesy of sending me a message to correct me and say you'd understated it Tony. Mm. Give us a flavour of what like of, of what we're dealing with and what the report that we that's only come out in the last little while. What's that telling us Mark? It's telling us that children are being failed by the services that are there to provide to help them to, 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 to move on to the next stage of their, their recovery through mental health um, so for example when this government came into power it was in 2020 there was just 2,115 children who were on the waiting list for just a first time initial assessment for camps that has risen now to over 4,000 now as we speak so mm-hmm. that's that's doubled in this government's lifestyle so that's this particular because I always think of this government as a 13 year government because Fine Gael got into power in 2011 yeah. but we're talking about specifically I, I, I'm this going, so I'm, the barometer I've set out was the it was the when Mary Butler became in Minister for Mental Health, um, mm. Minister for State for Mental Health in 2020 to now. That's the barometer I use. Mm. That's the, and that's what you can mark me on. Is that's my, since I've been there as well. So mm. that's the barometer I use. We, we've seen that doubled, which is absolutely disgraceful. And this is only for first time initial assessment. Yeah. This is before you actually get the actual interventions that they need. And it's not just medication. And it seems to be with CAMS that 65% of all young people that are going into CAMS are on medication alone. And that's that report of standards. Yeah. They're not getting the additional psychology. They're not getting in the occupation therapy or whatever else that they might need to that multidisciplinary team. But isn't it the case that the, the, the state has been farming out mental health care from the HSE? I mean, it's nearly all privatised or it's all in charities now at the moment. They've just been farming it out all over the place, taking no responsibility which seems to be the big issue. They won't take any responsibility for mental health for children. And I, and, I, and say farm it out. I don't think they deliberately farm it out. What's happened is because there has been gaps in mental health care for, for decades now at this stage, that these charities had to evolve in order to fill them gaps because all the go- successive governments weren't providing the care that was needed. And so Mark, that's neoliberalism. Yeah, the state, yeah. the state yeah. withdraws and, oh, yeah. the, and the NGOs have to fill the, have to fill the gap. And then, yeah. and then what we end up with is we've marketised... Um, something like that and that's you know so well Martin is you know the phraseology you maybe disagree with but the but the idea then where we're looking at these numbers and as you say under all those numbers there's oh there's a Hannah's daughter there's you know there's someone's son there's someone and 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 now we're medicating them because we're in lieu of um in lieu of actual treatment and, and you're right, 100%. And I've, I've always made this point in relation to them stats, 2,115, say, in 2020, and f- just over 4,000 now in 2023. Each one of them is an individual person. Each one of them is a child. Each one of them is a child with hopes, dreams, and ambitions, and ha- has a family and a circle of friends and school friends. And what's happening now is because of the ineffectiveness of the mental health system that we have at the moment, these these children's, basically, ambitions are being stopped. Their hopes and dreams are being stopped. And that's that's one of the biggest criminal things that this government has done and successive governments have done for years. And when you mix that in with the rampant homelessness, so many kids in precarious... I mean, at this stage, uh, over the since the, the 12, 13 years Fianna Gael have been in power, there must be an army of Martin, young people. I, did the, I ran the numbers, and it took me ages, I ran the numbers of going through the CSO reports, the monthly reports, because there's a turnover. This yes, is an awful, yeah, yeah. There's a turnover of children who are who are going through emergency yeah. accommodation. So all I, I could only go, I only got back like the six, six years, six and a bit years. I was getting near year seven and I realised um, there's more children had experienced emergency accommodation in that period than the entire population of Leitrim. Yeah, and this is, and this is where I, I'd come back to you on the mental health and say, these kids have failed from very, from before birth. 
that failed. Yep. You're working in, uh, and living in an area like Clondogan, as you said, a working class area with lots of social issues in the area. And then all of a sudden you'll get somebody robs a car, guard a car gets rammed, and all of a sudden they're scumbags. Let's shoot these people. But, the they've, but they've been failed from before birth. Mm. Failed from be- before birth. You know, no mental health services, nowhere to live, nobody gives a shit. How does that make you feel as a representative? It's 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 heartbreaking. And, and poverty underpins a lot of the problems that we have. And, and it's, it's systemic problem uh, poverty and it's intergenerational poverty that you'll see in, in some of the areas that, in, that, w- that I represent and, and, and across Dublin. Only recently there, I went out with Solis. I don't know if you know Solis who yeah. woke in, uh, in Dublin 8 and I went out on my own with them and I'd done the outreach with them. And I used to walk in that line of work so I was quite comfortable. But I was meeting young lads that were doing what they were doing um, on, on in, in street corners. And, and and stuff like that and they don't see any other option for them they don't see any other option than, than behaving in the way they're doing because there's a high rise uh, 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 apartment block 16 stories high being built right where they live mm-hmm. and they know they will never be able to live in one of them they know they'll never be able to afford one of them they know that they're being pushed out of their area because their area has been regentrified and stuff like that as well and it's absolutely horrific to see Just if we can go back then to so like let's you're the, you're your party's spokesperson, right? Um, we've seen the that the polls. What you, what your ambition is? If I was to turn around to you and I said to you, "Well, look, by the way, here's a here's a magic wand, and you're now actually in government." Mm-hmm. Um, what's your first sort of few days look like, Mark? What what are what is on on the top of of Mark Ward's agenda? Mental health spokesperson now actual you know junior minister of responsibility okay. for mental health. What what's Mark Ward going to do? So. We've already been preparing for this, so it's not something that we'd be going in and say, okay, we'll have to come up with something now. So we've produced, I produced a number of policy documents in relation to youth mental health. And one of them is, there's a cliff, ev- a cliff edge at the moment between when kids hit the age of 18 mm-hmm. and they go from transition from youth, uh, youth mental health services into adult mental health services and they're falling off the, they're falling off, the, falling in the cracks. The Masculine Report absolutely highlighted that, Mental Health, health Commission reports highlighted that. We can bring that policy uh, in nearly as soon as possible. But there's some things we can do tomorrow. And if the government only seen what they, what they could do tomorrow, for example, multi-annual funding for camps, allow them to be able to be strategic and forward plan, bring a multi-annual funding instead of half the year being taken up with resources, trying to get the resources for the following year, because that's what's happening. We can bring in an integrated IT system across camps tomorrow. I went out to CHO, I spent the recess meeting mental health groups and different organisations, and I was lucky enough to get one of the camps would see me in CHO Area 6. Now it's run through the, the, the John of Gods, hmm. but they have an integrated IT system where they can see the, 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 the patient management system. So a, a, a psychologist can come in and say, okay, the psychologist is working on this, the occupational therapy is working on this, and he can work on what he, or she can work on whatever they need to do that's something that can be brought in tomorrow like yeah. that's that's not is rocket there, science is there a, a big shortage of skills there is a shortage of skills and we need to have a, a workforce uh, management plan for that but also the panel system of recruitment within the HSE is one of these systems that's working it's counterproductive mm-hmm. it works against itself this this panel system of recruitment was set up when there was too many people applying for too few jobs now we haven't got enough people applying, not applying for the, the jobs that are there. and But they still have the same system in place. If that was changed, that would make it a lot easier for the people to get into positions as quickly as possible as well. And that's something that could happen overnight as well. Just conscious again, I want to come back to Martin reference, you know, your the back and we've spoken about, you know, the disadvantaged areas. 
is there I believe that there's a class bias in our in our uh, in our politics and how we deliver mental health services because even listening back to the to the women who we spoke to recently every one of them unfortunately apologized unfortunately didn't they Martin mm-hmm. because they apologized on the base that luckily enough we had enough money to go private yeah. luckily enough we had this we, and they were apologetic about that um how do you bridge that gap that makes sure that we don't it doesn't mean you don't need the money to access these services healthcare should be should be available a point of entry free for everybody as simple as that and we need to bring it back to that and that's something I know my party has been pushing from day one and that's something that we have plans to introduce when when and if we get a chance to be in government that is something that we'd be working on in relation to pay, paying privately Parents are desperate, hmm. so parents are absolutely. They shouldn't apologise, but the, people oh, should be but, people should be apologising to them. But the system makes them feel yeah. guilty because they, they kept saying, and they didn't. They Martin, like, and it, you'll find the money when yeah. you need yeah. to find it. You will. Christmas will go by. Other things will go by. I know a couple. I know a couple who twice saved for a deposit for a house. Mm. Twice successfully got stuff together, and then unfortunately, a child got sick okay. and had to put. The, because, and the state didn't back them up and they had to go private on a thing and now they're, they're after getting a um, a notice to quit. Okay. So they could have bought a house but now they couldn't buy the house because they had to go private and now they're actually going to lose their home as well. Mm-hmm. And that, Mark, is, is is like where you see the housing crisis is also impacting Absolutely. The, the health crisis. Absolutely. And you'll see, even in my area, we have a Kandalk and Cares Food Banks, it's called. Now, it's run by an organisation, one of the family resource centres and that it's gone a while but when they first set up it, there was tens of people and families availing their service. That's up into the hundreds now mm-hmm. over the last while. And they're very good at c- collecting the evidence of why people are accessing the service. And one of the things that came up to what I found was that parents were using the money to access private health care for their children, whether that be mental health or whether that be disability service, wherever it might be, they're using whatever money they have to, to get that child the help that they need when they need it and where they need it. And then they're accessing the food bank then for food. Mm-hmm. And that just goes off. That's a, a complete failure. It's not just a money matter though, Mark. You could throw lots of money and, and you certainly need to throw some money at this, but it's not just a money issue. It's not just a money issue, but when you hear the government, like, I'll have to turn into another forensic accountant again when this budget comes out because you have to differentiate between what's real money and what's not real money. Yeah. It's like smoke and mirrors that the government throw at you. So all through last year, the National Clinical Programs, there's four of them, one for eating disorders, one is for ADHD and, and, and two other areas. And these organisations, even within the HSE, we're getting in touch. Mark, Mark this money is not coming. Mm. And I'm going and asking parliamentary question after parliamentary question, calling out on the floor. No, it's on its way, it's coming. It never came, never arrived. Particularly on eating disorders. Yeah. We've had a huge issue here of underfunding eating disorders to the point where money that goes in, as you said, here's the entire budget for mental mm. health services. And the government, not this particular government, but, but the government previously, the, um, the, the Fine Gael government, they dipped into the budget and yeah. took money back yeah, yeah. and underfunded mental health services. That's what they, and then last year, based on what mental health reform asked for, they left them 25 million short of, I believe it, I think was the number off the top of my head. I can be corrected on that, but it was, they definitely, if they went in looking for a hundred million in increases in services, just to, just to get, just to go stay still, the government offered them 75. Yeah. And, and even at that as well, it's, it's 
not even new money. So no. this is what I'm talking about. So a lot of that money you'll find out. I think I, would, I think there was only 13 million in, in real new money for new for new services and mm. to recruit and stuff. Most of that was for existing levels of services to keep that ticking over. So when we're doing our budgets, we don't we don't bring that in as new money. We we we're very open. So we're doing we do a total budget every year. I think our, we had 84 additional uh, million last year. We'd be over 100 this year uh, in this. And when we're going into when doing these alternative budgets, these are not promises anyway these are commitments these are something and we live and die with them when, if we get a chance to be in government they're on paper oh, and, 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 and absolutely and we, and we will put your feet to the fire if you do absolutely, absolutely. And, and I make that commitment here today and that's something that even when we're going through it we got all our fun, we got all our figures through the through deeper through the Department yeah, of Public Expanded and Reform or if they go through as myself personally I go through David Cullinan's office and then we have to go through Pierce Doherty it's not an easy process <laughs> trying to get money off off Pierce Doherty but it, it's done and the due diligence is done I was going to say to you, is it ideological? But we know looking at the figures that Ireland spend on mental health is far below where it should be. So, I mean, you can say without doubt the way they, they treat mental health services in Ireland is ideological. I'd say classes, Martin. Well, I mean, that is the ideology. Classism is the ideology. How do you, how do you change that, Mark? How would you change the ideology? How would you change public opinion sometimes? Or even the media, right? So even this morning, that big report came out from CAM. So I mm. first thing on this morning, I was listening to the, the radio this morning. It was, I think it was Fort on the on the news there this morning, mm. as in on, on, the, on the agenda. News talk on the yeah. agenda. You had the CEO's uh, uh, people see old places on before you had Stephen Kenny picking his next squad for Ireland ahead before ahead of before yeah. now that you've sported usually at the back and I was like and then mental health at the end so that's the bit we need to change and I, I've been pushing left right every week you probably see myself yeah, yeah. I have press releases out on at least two or three times I, a week I, I'm trying on, to I'm push on, it. full disclosure lads I'm on loads of um, TD's uh, mailing lists for their media updates and stuff and Mark you're a very busy boy you know, you're you're almost like me with the Patreon updates, right? <laughs> okay. So no, but but that's to your credit. I I, I want to see public reps working their arses mm. off, and this is. But but when you're went back to Martin's point, and and the idea then of, um, we don't want to just fix this. We want to make it make it actually. You know that it's 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 going to operate now going forward. How long would it take you? If do you think like because we money will do some of the work but recruiting getting people like let's be honest with people now how long would something like that take how long is a piece of string on that one right so we're working on that we have plans in place already for for work workplace recruitment and retention and all that in place but we need to it's not going to happen overnight Mm-hmm. But we're going to start working on things to get people into the jobs positions, positions that they're in. So even for example, you've seen there recently, Pierce Doherty and McCarthy over in Australia with uh, one of our guys over in Canada trying to entice people to come back, trying to entice these skill set to come back. We're exploring everything possible that we can can do to get done. Uh, what I was out there recently talking about, there was a a Pacific Children and Youth Mental Health course in Trinity that is not on this year. It was the first time that hasn't been on. It's been cancelled. I've written to the minister. We're trying to get trying to get something resolved, and um, they're saying it's not open it, because isn't they haven't got someone to teach it. Gas because yeah. Trinity this year are dining out yeah. on the great work of um, Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan and mm-hmm. her book and how yeah, yeah. successful yeah. it's been. And you know she was a Trinity Access Program graduate, yeah, yeah. and they got it an in, and and then to not actually be 
one that one course in particular, and that's that course is open to people that are already in the healthcare. It's already it's, it's open to guards, which I thought was brilliant as mm. well. Guards are actually available as well, and it's not happened again this year. It's a great point though on the guards because the guards, when someone is in is having what something is a mental health episode, mm. you don't need a guard calling to the door quite often, Mark. No, you need a mental health professional. Absolutely, and I agree one hundred percent. And too long the guards have been gatekeepers for mental health, and it shouldn't happen. Uh, we have a there was a pro actually I got the idea from our my other our other spokesperson in in the north or Leah Flynn mm. they they ran a pilot program up in in Belfast in relation to it's called a crisis de-escalation team where if somebody's having a me- mental health episode within, in the community that this mental health team will come out to them they will they will meet them they will triage them and they will bring them to appropriate service and that's what they do and it has cut down on the amount of people uh, so guards um, up in the so the PNSI mm. hadn't been taking as many people in for mental health episodes and the amount of people that have been going to emergency departments as well has cut down radically on that I proposed this to the government they, they didn't um, they didn't put it in and then all of a sudden they are putting in a pilot project but that pilot project hasn't started and that's three years now at this stage mm. and it's meant to be happening in Limerick so I'm hoping it's going to happen this year No matter how bad the in-office services are and they are bloody bad mm. the out of our services are non-existent, Mark. Non-existent. So, mental health issues do not happen between nine and no, five only, don't. and they don't happen between on a Monday and a Friday. They can happen at any time, any place, and often or not, it's at the out of hours when somebody's on their own, when somebody's in the dark night time. That it brings an awful lot on. If you go to emergency departments, it's hit and miss whether they're going to have a liaison psychiatrist on that night. More likely than not, they don't. Or, or they're sharing them with another another department. So you could have one liaison psychiatrist between the matter hospital and the hospital. Mm-hmm. And you know how busy both of them emergency departments are. So that's something that we need to improve on as well. But that's only for emergency departments. We need to put things in place that are going to stop people having to need the emergency departments that's in right. the first place. And that's that's the bit we need to work on. Just you've you said about, you know, needing some to, to treat someone who's having a mental health episode as a, as a healthcare need as opposed to a... Uh, Department of Justice yeah. re- requirement, let's just say. You feel the same about about uh, people with personal drug use, that we need to move that very quickly towards a, um, whether it's a Lisbon model, you can't just lift and shift the Lisbon model here, but something so, along those lines, Mark. So, and you've got frontline yeah. experience. So I, I've worked in this line of work for, for years and, and I know I like the back of my hand and I know the people that would engage in their service and 99% of them are really, really good people that are just caught in the throes of addiction. And most time it's just for personal use and, and all that kind of stuff. The Portuguese model is something that I, it's it's something that I'd be really, really interested in. But if we were to introduce a Portuguese model tomorrow, it would not work because the Portuguese model, what it does do, is direct people back into healthcare systems into treatment. They, they have a dissuasion commission, yeah. which yeah. is we've spoke to the head of it twice, yeah. Nuno Capaz. We need a dissuasion commission. Yeah, and we haven't got that. But we don't also have the if if somebody does need the say to go into treatment or if somebody needs to go into rehabilitation, we don't, don't have, have that. Yeah. Absolutely don't have that. So we don't have a dual diagnosis inpatient mm. in, in, in no it's meant to be back open Keltoin, the Phoenix Park was closed and it's been closed for three years. That was a route for people to go from a methadone detox say in Kundara and then into Keltoy for the rehabilitation 
rehabilitation. So detox and rehabilitation are two different things. Like you need to be able to go back into society, build up your resilience and, and start learning new ways of coping with things because an awful lot of times is if you're caught in the throes of addiction, your way of coping is to take whatever your drug of choice is. I'm feeling happy, I'll use that drug. I'm feeling sad, I'll use that drug. It's a coping mechanism and we need to help people to have learn new coping mechanisms to, lead, to, lead with, to deal with their new, the real world. Yeah, there's, there's a physical detox which is actually really quite quick mm. but the mental detox mm. takes a long, long time to detox people mentally. Absolutely. And, and I said, if you're at the using a substance for a long period of time, your, your, all your emotions are, are pushed down. They're pushed down. They're, 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 they're under the influence of whatever, whatever drug you're taking and they're not coming out. So when you stop taking drugs, an awful lot of times what happens is that all your emotions will come up at the same time. And it's really, really difficult to, to, to deal with. Especially so, if the reason you took the drug first was a trauma. And, and, and if you go back to the initial reason why a lot of people take drugs, it's, it's, it's back to trauma. It's intergenerational trauma. It's poverty. It's all the reasons that we spoke about at the start as well. Sorry, go ahead, Martin. I was going to ask what's come in our direction. We know where we stand at the moment with drug use in Ireland. We know it's pretty rampant in Ireland mm -hmm. at the moment. We know there are a lot of different drugs. Have we anything like fentanyl coming down the line? Are we looking at an opioid crisis on the way into Ireland? We've heard anecdotally there's fentanyl in some cities in Ireland. Do you think that that's going to happen here? I, I hope it doesn't, but uh, like if you if you listen to the, the fatalities that fentanyl is causing right across America and and parts of Europe as well, it's really really frightening. Um, so I I hope it's not. But uh, if it if it did come in, would we have the services here and now to be able to help people if they were caught in that addiction? The answer is the answer is no. Because we can't cope with what we have at the moment, because they haven't they haven't resourced addiction services. Uh, drug and alcohol task forces since the austerity measures they've been caught I was on a board for years I know exactly what they have to do if that wants, if they want to bring in a new initiative say to deal with fentanyl mm -hmm. we've seen it with Tala last year in fairness Tala uh, drug and alcohol task force brought in a new initiative around uh, crack cocaine because it was prevalent in their area prevalent in my area as well it's prevalent up the road here yeah but because they brought that in and they had no new funding something else that was working that were doing really really well had to stop so that's what that's what drug and alcohol task force are left with. They, to do something new and to meet the needs in the community, they have to let something go that's already working, and that's not the way to be. We should get funding for for new initiatives. Yeah, absolutely. But we we also need to understand that again. It goes back to this nonsense of you know what Martin was saying earlier. The the response has been to try and um what, what was the police people out of poverty? <laughs> this idea and and we don't and by the way that's just a don't that, be poor, isn't that, that it? Really? But that's a fallacy as well because they don't even have the guards to 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 carry out the because they can't recruit them because mm. they, no one wants to be in that line of work because mm. it's just not an attractive role like it and so so the whole thing is a fallacy. But like something strikes me. Like, do you mind? Can you think when? What age were you when you? when you moved out thereabouts? When I moved out of home? Yeah. My first time moving out of home, I would have been about 19, let's say, 18, 19, yeah? Yeah. And, yeah. and now we're looking at, what, Martin, 35-year-olds sitting in there, nearly half a million. Talking as a dad with a 25-year-old, <laughs> 26-year-old sitting at home, and it's not for want of trying yeah. to get something else. So I, I give it, and she probably give it out to me because I mentioned that my daughter's graduating next week from, yeah. UC, from UCD. And Congratulations she's, to her. She's heading off to Australia now at Christmas and she's gone for a year but I don't know how long that's going to be because as she said when, especially when he brought in the minimum pricing around alcohol that time <laughs> she said I can't afford a gaffer cans in this country is what she said to me so 
She's my, heading off. And I don't. I can't blame her. No. Here's here's my fear about it, and and the numbers are there today or yesterday. There's so many thousands of five hundred thousand, half a million sitting in their in okay. their childhood bedrooms. In their mm. childhood bedrooms, people. You know, if those people voted in a meaningful way, Ireland would change completely. My fear is that they've been made children so long that they've become inured to the situation that they're in. I'm a little bit more optimistic on that and I can I can and I'll say that from own personal experience. So my area, so one of the, one of my core areas, the area where I grew up is, is in North and Dawkins, the Neilstown kind of area, yeah, Quarryvale yeah. area. It's a we also had historically the one of the lowest turnouts in the country when it came to voters. Um that has changed. That's changed since the even before the last by election, the one that I, I was successful in, even before that in the in the local elections, we could see we could see a changing where people are saying, Hold on, this is we're not happy with what's going on anymore. We want something different. We want to change. And whether the change is Sinn Fein or, or an independent or somebody else, they want that change because they see the the government parties that are there, historically there over the last hundred years, aren't doing anything for them yeah. so you, you must be delighted with the new electoral commission's uh, recommendations and the, the idea then that it gives you the capacity to not even just yourself and own run but add, an, add a candidate yeah so it came out yesterday and the, well, there's winners and losers in this every way oh, so yeah. so for example we we gained some ground we gained some area in Tala which is right beside it so it's Sean Crow's area which he, I'd say Sean be disappointed to lose that area because I know he's done a hell, hell of a lot of hard work in it we, we're in, we were in a four uh, seater constituency we're now going to five even in a four seater constituency we were con- strongly considering running three and four mm. so if, if we are strongly considering running three and four we're even more strongly considering running three and five at the moment I can take that now. to Paddy Powers as a bank <laughs> can I? <laughs> That's one you can bank on um, just let's here's, here's my fear and uh, and again, you can't answer for this, but I will put you on the spot anyway. My fear is that Sinn Féin are going to run in the next general election on a mandate for change. They are putting themselves forward as the vehicle for that, that vote. I don't believe that vote is yours, by the way, uh, by rights. I believe it may be the vehicle for it in the, in the next general election. And then you're going to bloody run to the centre, Mark. I want you staying on the left. Mark, Mark tell me now, you're, you're sitting there, I see I see a free Palestine bracelet on you. I, you're talking about working class communities. Tell me, if you start talking centrism, uh, Mark, I swear to you that, that, that if Sinn Féin go down that road, we, that I cannot see how we deliver change, meaningful change for people. Absolutely. And I'm very optimistic that we will deliver the meaningful change. I'm very optimistic that people's quality of life will improve under the Sinn Féin government, that their access to services will improve under the uh, Sinn Féin government, their access to housing will improve under the Sinn Féin government. I wouldn't be putting out policy documents and putting my name to something if I didn't, if I wasn't confident that I'd be able to stand over them. So I'd be very confident that we would be be that vehicle for change and to make people's lives better. And that's, that's a simple, that's probably a very simplistic way of looking at it. But we will make people's quality of life better. I hope it happens. And so do I. I do. I do. I think we need change. I think we've been in this stasis for too long. And I think we need change. And as Tony said, Sinn Féin is certainly the vehicle for change. I'm not so keen about Sinn Féin going into coalition with Fianna Fáil, but I certainly think Sinn Féin are the, the vehicle for change. One cheap, cheap, cheeky question. How important is a, a, a border poll to you? 
Oh, border patrol is very important. Like it, it's something like it's it, we have a mandate as from our from our members that United Ireland is is key to what we what we want to achieve. It'll be so, in the program for government first I, page. I, I don't know maybe first page. I know what we've been asking for is a citizens assembly on on the United Ireland, and that's something that we have to do. We don't want to be in the same position that what happened in 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 Britain when mm. Brexit came in. They had no plan, and we and we're still feeling the aftermath of that. So what this government and are failing to do is to plan for the uh, United Ireland we will start planning we're planning now already but in government we will start to plan and we start the mechanism on what United Ireland would look like we need to know what it looks like around health around housing around employment right across the around Ireland policing yeah. around, around everything so okay. no, 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 it's I mean, complex it, it's a really good point you make because um, Sam who hosts Shrapnel makes the point all the time that he didn't vote for Brexit he's a, he's a loyalist mm. but he didn't vote for Brexit because he said you couldn't tell me what it was going to look like yeah, yeah. and one of the reasons why United Ireland any conversations that have to happen you have to be able to tell the loyalist community what what it will look like yeah, absolutely and and you know the you're going to get parts of it they just don't want to engage but you have to keep reaching out and Sinn Féin have to keep reaching out and it's something that we've always done we've really we'll reach, we'll reach out to all as Michelle O'Neill she, she is a force minister for all it's not just a force minister for one side of, of, of the, the six counties it's a force minister for all and that's the way we've approached it Mark, thanks for coming in and having this conversation with us. It's been an interesting conversation. Uh, I think it's interesting that you'll be able to pull another one in constituency as well. I think that's really, that's probably the only constituency where there's a chance of pulling three in. It probably is the only constituency. Oh, I don't know. Look, I, it's it's too, I, haven't, I haven't gone into too much detail yet, but I do think, you know, Sinn Féin could be chasing 70 plus seats here now. Yeah, we, well, like we, we'll break it down when we get close. When we near it out, we'll break well, it down. As I said, we're ready this time. As, in, as after the last general election, we've we've been preparing for this general election since then to make sure that we have the most the most candidates possible and the most quality of candidates. It was it was a missed opportunity. Oh, it was. I mean, we we and Mary Lou has come out herself and said ourselves it was a missed opportunity. We didn't see it coming, and we weren't hadn't got the most Stri- candidates. That strikes ones. me then that was a point that Harry made yesterday, or was it Kevin who said to us? He said how he's doing running people for the locals now. Are you identifying new talent for the locals? So, as I said, since the last elections, we have been doing nothing but identifying quality candidates, not just the quantity, but it's quality candidates that are going to bring our movement forward over the next, the local elections and the next general elections. Mark, thanks again. Hope to chat to you again. Uh, maybe we'll do it when you're well, after the next election or before that when you're oh, in government and we'll be, have a chat. I can tell you it'll be after the budget when we're, we're sitting around wondering what the hell happened. Yeah, we'll need yeah, a break when, when the forensic accountant comes out exactly. and all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. Thanks for coming over, Mark. Right. I really appreciate it. Folks, we will be back um, covering. We have a ton of stuff coming next week, but we're first and foremost, actually, we're going back to talk to Mahmoud in Gaza about uh, the last, some of the reporting he's been doing. Uh, and uh, Oh, I'm well, you're, if you know, you love listeners have heard Issam Adwan on this podcast several times. Issam got uh, promoted uh, in, in the old AP. So uh, if you're listening to Issam, congratulations. We're delighted for you. We'll talk to you all very, very soon. Take care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.